0: Today, the complexities of a new start. Perfect for a new year or for any other time a new start is coming or needs to come, whether you want it to or not.
1: Welcome to Coffee with Kramer where you get to sit down with our host Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place.
0: There are a host of different issues going on in the culture right now, and really always in our society, uh, that invite this conversation. Uh, It can be termed or framed a number of different ways, but it has to do with repentance and forgiveness, the idea of someone having done something that they need to apologize for or that removes them from some position of power or whatever it is, and then the follow-up to that. Can they be restored? Should they be, you know, when they're forgiven, can it, can it be forgotten? All those questions that go together with it. And in our culture, it you know, it, it plays out a lot of times in the idea of, of an accusation leading to the cancellation of a human being from anywhere in public society or the restoration of that person, but then at the cost of someone else's security, uh, where uh, survivors might be looking at this person and saying, why are you allowing them to come back out in public and traumatize me again, and so on. Well, all of those kinds of issues have underlying them uh, questions of Uh, sin and failure and violence and abuse and anything where a person has crossed the line against another, so a transgression, and then restoration or forgiveness or uh, restitution and all of those kinds of ideas that go with what happens in the wake of that transgression. So that's what I want to talk about. And a couple of examples come to mind just in, in the immediate past. One, uh, Johnny Hunt, uh, whose case I'm not going to talk about in any detail whatsoever. I don't know any details about it other than what were in the the report that came out, uh, the Guidestone report that came out in the um, guide I said Guidestone, the Guidepost report that came out uh, about the Southern Baptist Convention, and the sexual abuse uh, that had taken place in it that had not been properly dealt with, and his is one of those cases. And it's told in some detail, but you can go read it if you want to know some of the detail. the The report was available online. i must, I assume, it's still available online for you to read. So, anyway, this this uh, pastor was guilty of violating in in the report, guilty of violating uh, and sexually abusing, taking advantage of a young woman that was uh, in his care for one reason or another. And uh, I I don't have any doubt that it happened, but. You know, again, I'm reading it from the outside, just saying what was in the report. Well, the report came out last year, before the June convention met, and, uh, you know, this is uh, not even a year ago, so six months, nine months ago the report came out, and already a month ago or so, four pastors— uh, concluded, and this is all in social media, and you can go read it there for the details, four different pastors, concluded after meeting with him and, you know, presumably uh, having some kind of accountability with him, but they're all his friends, and I, that doesn't make them evil. It, it doesn't mean they don't care about him. It doesn't mean they wouldn't be honest, but it does have an influence on what they're going to say or do In response to his uh, transgression, and then whether he should be restored or not. And all all four of these pastors said, You know, we've spent time with him and we believe that it's time for him to be restored to ministry. And so they wanted to put him back into uh, service and put him on the platform for conferences that he preaches at and things like this. And of course, that caused an uproar from other people who said, This is absurd for four friends to declare that he's now ready to be restored to the platform as if. The entire guidepost report and the whole nature of sexual abuse reforms that were being advocated for weren't even important. I'm not even going to choose a side right now, but you can probably tell from my intonation what I think, uh, you know, about that. Uh, but 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 that's for a different day. My point is, there is a legitimate question raised there. Are we saying he can never serve in leadership again? Are we saying he can never serve in a church again? Are we saying he shouldn't attend a church again? Are we, you know, so at what point do we say, oh, no, 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 it's time for restoration. It's time for a person to be restored to where they were before. Uh, I mean, he's, so has he expressed repentance? Has he demonstrated enough of that? So on. All those questions come to mind. The other one happened even more recently. Or remember, a couple of weeks ago, Aaron Dean was convicted of manslaughter. As I'm recording this, he has not received a sentence yet. It could be, it could range from uh, things that require no jail time, uh, even though I think it would, uh, you know, at least uh, entitle include some jail time, six months at a minimum, or something like that, to to something very substantial in prison. But it wasn't he wasn't convicted of murder, but he was convicted of manslaughter and the death in the, in the killing of a Tatiana Jefferson, which I think was the murder of a Tatiana Jefferson. I mean, you know, if a woman's in her home, in her private home uh, and is shot through the window for doing nothing more than exploring what on earth was going outside in her backyard from inside of her house, and she's killed. I would put that in the category of the murder of a Tatiana Jefferson, even if uh, Aaron Dean is only convicted of manslaughter. I'm not saying by that that I want to change anything. That I don't know the details of I didn't hear all the testimony. I'm not one of the jurors. I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just telling you, reminding you of the story and what happened and why I'm using the language that I'm using. In that case, I heard some of the testimony on the news, like many of you did, of Aaron Dean, who was saying how sorry he was that it had happened. Uh, who expressed remorse, uh, I think, and no doubt regret, but even remorse over what had happened, and yet, at the same time, uh, made it clear that he would do the same thing again. And I don't know the words, I would do the same thing again, were used, but it was very clear. She was pointing a gun. I saw it. If she were to raise that gun, I would shoot her. Yeah, I would do the same thing. And so it was very clear that there's something there that says, but then on the other hand, he's working for the police. When this happens, he's responding, presumably, according to the training that he received. And I don't know how much of that training was precisely followed or not followed. I'm not presuming anything about it, but let's just say it was followed. Then how much is on him and how much is on the police department? How much is on the training? How much is on the presumption? That people have about it. How much is on the nature of a culture in which a white police officer looks into a a house and says, well, it doesn't make sense that that could be the homeowner because they're black. I didn't hear him say that. I'm not presuming that he said that, but I don't think it's an unreasonable supposition based on what happened after he went into the house. Okay, so I'm not trying to get into all the details of it, but enough to make this point. Even if it was entirely about the training that he received from the police department. And even if it was entirely rooted in him personally, only in the systems that produced a person who would look at a home and that homeowner and not be able to put them together in his mind in a tenth of a second. Even if all of those things were true so that there was no ill motive inside of him as a person thinking of another person, is there still no personal accountability for what happened? or responsibility for what happened? Do, 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 we just, do we just say, well, you know, this is okay now because it really wasn't his fault. So we'll hold the police department accountable and then we'll address systemic racism and we'll just say, well, it's unfortunate that, that you happen to be informed by that uh, during this event, but uh, you're free to go, Mr. Dean. Or do we hold him accountable and the system accountable and so on? So all of those questions sort of address, and e- even if you say, oh, it was a tragic accident, A woman is still dead. Is there no consequence for that? And of course there is. I'm not saying that the the court didn't find that there should be a consequence for it. I'm simply pointing out that that question is a complex question and involves a lot of moving pieces. And while we may not be dealing with a high profile religious leader who has failed morally or with a police officer who has shot a homeowner through a window while we may not be dealing with something that dramatic, and some of us are, but while, while we may not be dealing with something that dramatic, we do deal with the realities of people who have transgressed in some way, who have crossed the line to violate the people around them, maybe even violate you, and who repent. And I've got air quotes going, and, and not because I'm saying it's not a real word or used sincerely, but because we don't know because you know this person says i'm I, i'm sorry i'll never do it again i promise i'll never hit you again i promise i'll never drink again i promise i won't uh, go out and buy drugs again i promise i won't steal again i promise you know and so on we deal with people like that all the time when we deal with them at what point do we say i don't believe you at what point do we say you know even if your repentance is sincere i'm still not going to restore you or at what point do we say I know you hurt me deeply, but I will let you back in because you've repented and you've made things right. Obviously, this is not an easy question to answer. And I don't expect it to take one episode for us to cover some of the complexities, nor... Do I expect us to have a formulaic response for you? So if you take A and B and combine them and square them and use the, you know, the whatever, the logarithm, then you can find the solution of whether they should be restored or not at this point. You know, we're not doing that. But I think if we understand at least the complexities that are involved, we can make decisions that are informed enough that we can take responsibility for the choices that we make about these things and move forward with an awareness of what we should be paying attention to as we're doing it. So the first thing I want to do is just give sort of a, it, I, I'm going to say a scriptural grounding to how to talk about it. And I, and I do mean scriptural. It, it, I, I am going to use some uh, biblical reference to, to make this point, but it's also a historical and sociological point uh, because it would be true to talk about these things. You can tell that analytically, these things have to be talked about one way or another, regardless of whether you put it in the framework of the Bible as the authoritative word of God, which I believe, I'm the president of Criswell College, we believe in Scripture, but whether you believe that or not, the thing Scripture says about this needs to be dealt with. And so the approach that you take, I hope, would be informed by these considerations. So in, in one way, I just want to take sort of a pass by... Uh, some scriptural ideas about this just so you get the categories in your mind, but then a a little more detailed analysis of what Scripture actually says happens when a person commits a certain kind of violation against another person and how they respond to that and what that reveals about the ideas we ought to have in our mind as we're dealing with sin and repentance and forgiveness and restoration as concepts. So here's the, here's the idea. First of all, in the complexity of the relationship between repentance and forgiveness, you absolutely have to have in mind first the difference between the offender, the person who has done the wrong, and the offended, the survivor, we would say, if it were a sex abuse uh, case. Uh, the offended being the person who was wronged in this case. The idea that offenders ever say to the offended you should respond this way as if they have authority to tell someone else what they should do when they were the one who offended them is absurd at the outset you are not the judge if you are the offender and you don't get to make the social decision about how this is to be resolved. You don't get to instruct the other person how to respond. And that happens all the time. We'll talk more about it in, in uh, you know, later conversations about this. But the idea that a spouse would say, you have to forgive me for this because the Bible says that's what Christians do. That's absurd. You don't have the right to use those words for a bunch of reasons, one of which is you are the transgressor in this situation, not the judge, and the other of which is it's just false. It's it's a, a lack of understanding of what the meaning of the word forgiveness or the content of the concept mercy is. Okay, so anyway, as we talk about it in Scripture, the complexity of this begins with uh, or grasping the complexity of this begins with separating, with uh, making discreet how we speak of the offender and then how we speak of the offended. And so to talk about how complex the problems become, to use a couple of offenders as the example in Scripture, as easy examples, because these are innocuous, they're dead, it was ages ago, nobody's offended when you talk about them, right? There's Judas who definitely has remorse, we'll talk the details later, I'll, I'll read the passage to you in a little bit, but Judas, who definitely has remorse, and yet becomes the model of the Antichrist. He's clearly not forgiven, too bad, bud, you know, it's, it's just too late. So there's Judas on one side, and Zacchaeus, whom, about whom, by the way, we would today, if he were doing for us today what he did to Israel then, we would have called him a Judas. That's the word we would use to describe him, and yet clearly he's okie dokie. I mean, when Jesus finishes the conversation with with him, his words are, "He is also a son of Abraham." I mean, he's in the covenant. So the difference between Judas and Zacchaeus is an example of the range of responses we can have to the offender, one who nope, that never going to be forgiven. And the other who, yeah, he's restored. These are different cases. Something's different between Judas and Zacchaeus. And then there's a difference also among those who are offended that we need to keep in mind. So for instance, in some cases, we need to respond in the way the Corinthian church was told to respond when they had someone who was uh, violating them. He is violating his covenant with you. You need to discipline him. You need to put him out of the church. You need to treat him like he is no longer a part of your fellowship. It's basically reiterating the practice of the Old Testament when he would use the words and do not spare on the basis of mercy. So when someone does this, do not let your eye have pity on them. Act and hold your ground. And Paul says that to the Corinthian church about this man who's committing this immorality in their midst. Stop being merciful to him. You're not helping, you're enabling him, stop it. You know, he doesn't use the word enabling. I mean, obviously I'm, it's an anachronism, but I'm, but I'm making the point, that's what he's getting at. Stop. Stop making it okay for him to commit this sin. Don't defend him, kick him out of your church. To the same church, Paul has to say, this is the offended church. Paul has to say in the second letter that he writes, in 2 Corinthians, you need to stop punishing this person who did this offense against you, whether it's the same person, a different person, whatever. He says to them in the second letter, hey, he has repented. He has has made things right in some way, and so it's time to let him back in to the fellowship. Let your eye have pity on the man. Meaning, there are times when the offended is supposed to hold their ground and say, No, you cannot come back in. And there are times when the offended is supposed to open the door and say, We will make ourselves vulnerable to you again. Where is the difference? And I'm not saying there's a clear, dark line right here. Just cross. The whole point of this conversation is to say how complex it is to find the best choice for each offended or offender in each of these kinds of situations. So let's take into account then some of the layers of offense that happen when someone steps across the line, which also means some of the layers of offense that happen to a people who have been violated or a person who has been violated in some way, which also means these different ways that society as a whole is supposed to think of what we should do about it. What are, we, what are we supposed to make of this? And I think this part of the conversation, in, in, and in my view, and, I, and I've talked about this for years, in, when I was on the radio, we, we did shows about this particular example in the Old Testament, which I think is revelatory in some ways. And, it, and again, it also just nods to some other issues that come up in other parts of Scripture, but it, but it is revelatory about how complex this becomes because the nature of the offense is not simple to begin with. Even when you commit just one act, so you've done something wrong, you've stolen a sheep, you've actually committed three different offenses at a minimum, and these are the three that are inescapable. They are present no matter what, just on the basis of how a person is supposed to be responded to when they offend in that way. So I'm going to use that example of stealing a sheep. So in uh, in Exodus 22, in fact, we'll make it an ox or a sheep, I'm just saying. As I look at the passage, I realize it's an ox or a sheep, either one. So here's how it says it in e- Exodus 22 verse 1. So of course this is the law. It's the Old Testament. I'm not saying let's reenact the law. I'm saying what this and this is why I said a moment ago, I'm not giving this to you as the as the way to respond when someone steals from you. Oh, you owe me 3. I'm not saying that. I'm not I'm not asking for us to become, <laughs> you know, uh, somehow governed by the Old Testament law in our American Constitution. I'm not asking for that at all. I don't believe in that at all. What I do know is that what Israel learned, and I'll take it this way theologically first, what Israel learned from God about how they needed to deal with this socially is something that's applicable to societies. It it applied to theirs, so we should learn from it, just from what they experienced in how God instructed them to do this. And putting that aside, just the fact that a society had to deal with all of these issues means that we should be willing to look at them and say, I wonder why they thought all of that was necessary in this act of responding to someone's transgression? And that's what we're going to answer. And as you'll see, as we talk through it, it sort of automatically unfolds. And part of that's just because we we already have to think about these issues. It automatically unfolds into these things that we just can't get rid of. One way or another, we're gonna have to deal with all of these things. So here's a way to see it. Exodus 22, (laughs) we're back to the passage now, finally. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and then kills it or sells it, which, which, of course, is why he stole it, probably. He's not just going to keep it in his field. So if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. I have no idea why five and four. I don't, I don't know why it's more for ox than for sheep. I just don't get it. Maybe they're harder to replace. I don't know. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking, but notice that it is more, you don't just take the sheep back. You don't just take the ox back. There's more, which tells you that this is a violation of something more than just the sheep being in the wrong place. If all that had happened is, oh, well, the wrong wrong person's got the sheep. You get the right person, the sheep, everything's back to normal. Nope, that's not enough. Something else has happened, which introduces a moral element here. So in verse 2, if a thief is found, found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay the person who killed him. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So while the guy is trying to steal it, he hasn't even gotten away with it yet. Oh, I found him. He's trying to steal my sheep. Hey, put the sheep back and you go on your way. Nope. You were trying to steal my sheep. I found you while you were trying to steal it. I can prove that you were trying to steal it. Now you owe me another one. You gotta make it right. So this tells you that there's more wrong here than just the transfer of property, You know that somehow or another the property's in the wrong hands. There's something else going on here. So I think there are three things that are going on uh, that you just can't escape. Number one, the person has violated their own virtue. They have failed to be the right kind of person. That's in the language of saying that this person is a thief, just identifying them as a thief. So when this person does this, the sun rises on the person, he's found breaking in, a thief is found breaking in. You've got a person who has failed morally to be the kind of person they're supposed to be. And so your response to them is different than someone who is the right kind of person. So this person's virtue has failed in some way. This is why we use the word vicious for people when they commit crimes. Now, it has come to mean particularly violent crimes and things like that, like a dog that's vicious. But the idea of vicious is simply that a person is committing vice instead of virtue, that they're a person who doesn't understand how it is that we're supposed to be the kind of person who functions in society and lives among others in this way. It's not about what we're doing to other people. It's about the kind of person we're supposed to be. This corresponds perfectly with virtue ethics. We've had conversations about ethical systems, but virtue ethics looks at every situation in person and doesn't simply say, what's the right thing to do? because that implies that the rightness of it is in the act itself. Virtue ethics assumes that the the more important question is, what would a virtuous person do in this situation? What would the right kind of person do in this circumstance? And there's a lot of legitimacy in that. Even coming into the New Testament when Jesus speaks about things that other people consider wrong, he says, even if you don't commit the act, that's not the question. What's going on in your heart? That's the question. And you know how that goes in the Sermon on the Mount and following. It's not the things that come into a man, but the things that come out of him that make him righteous or sinful, as Jesus says it, from the heart of a man, right? So all of those things are evidence that there's something in the person themselves that needs to be made right. And in and in context, what this deals with is saying you know, like, for instance, the response to Exodus 22 could have been, and there's some of this in the Old Testament, the response could have been, hey, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and you find him, kill him. Now, you can do that if you are finding them and, it's you know, you, it's dark and you're not sure how, what's going to go on with this and so on. Fine. You can kill them because they were guilt. You were trying to defend your property and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying now. I'm not saying we should be that way now. I'm not having a conversation about castle laws right now. I'm not talking about Texas and whether you like guns or not. In the Old Testament, when there were no police forces, there there was no criminal justice system the way we have it now. There was nothing like that when you had to defend your own property. It's saying even if you kill someone for stealing your property, if you weren't able to find, you weren't able to see them, Uh, meaning you don't know who it was, you weren't going to be able to hold them accountable the next day, you weren't going to be able to take them to one of the cities where you could ask a judge to make a decision about it and so on, then, you know, if you kill them, even though they were only stealing something, it's okay that you killed them. There is that present in the Old Testament, and it's present in some strong ways, stronger ways than that in some places, but it's also the case that here it's clear that if you find this person stealing your sheep and you have any possible way of solving the problem otherwise, then you don't kill them. There's something redeemable about the person even if they haven't obtained the virtue they're supposed to have. And what that translates to in our current criminal justice system is the idea of reformation. That you don't throw people away simply because they've committed a crime. You don't throw people away because they had one moral failure. In our criminal justice system it's the idea of reform and for some people that's the only thing that they think about. I appreciate the fact that those people are focused on reform because it's a legitimate issue. How do you bring a person to a point where they can survive again and serve and contribute to society again? Uh, Reformation is a beautiful and brilliant thing, and it's a biblical thing. We should should be willing to do that, but it's not the only thing. So the second thing that comes up is the one that's most obvious in this passage, which is restitution. So the person's, and this has to do with the person's debt to the one from whom they unjustly took something. So, you know, uh, and by the way, we do this now. We still do this now. So for instance, in some criminal fraud convictions, and I'm sure this is true about some other convictions too. I just, I just hear it when it has to do with fraud. In some criminal fraud convictions, there's a requirement for restitution. So you're gonna serve six months in prison and you're gonna give $2 million back to the people that you, you know stole from or whatever, if they have the money. And, I, and from what I understand, a lot of times these restitutions never actually take place. Uh, it becomes a bankruptcy or something else and whatever. But, uh, but regardless, we have the concept of restitution built into our criminal justice system. So we understand what's going on here when it says, when you steal someone's sheep, you got to give it back to them. <laughs> you know, you, you, ha- you have to make it right. The fact that the restitution goes beyond just what they took is a different thing. That's punishment. We'll get to that in a moment. We're not there yet. But just on the idea of restitution, it's automatic that you have to say, well, we have to get things back where they're supposed to be, and that actually corresponds, just like we were talking about when a person has failed to live up to the virtue they ought to have to be, the kind of person they ought to be, that corresponds with virtue ethics. This one corresponds with utilitarian ethics, and again, we did a we, we did a, a whole uh, podcast, a whole episode, maybe more than one episode, on the different ethical systems, and utilitarianism is one of those, And utilitarianism is the idea that you do the most good for the most people. Whatever brings the most good, the most happiness to the most people, not cheap happiness, but the most utilitarian good to the most people, that's the thing that ought to be done. And that's what this is doing. This is restoring goods, restoring sheep and oxen and so on, to the person who ought to have them. And saying that if people can keep their property and they can harvest their crops and know that they're gonna be able to sell it at the end of the year, because not everybody was able to just steal it from them or raid them and take it from them, then we're gonna have a better society than we would. Otherwise, this is the idea of of utilitarianism. And it it just corresponds nicely with the idea of, well, let's make things right. Let's get things back in the proper order socially so that people can go on functioning in their lives and things will be okay. We make things work all right. Okay, fine. That's a, and this is the idea of restitutions built into our, our, our criminal justice system, built into our civil court system as well. The third one, though, and this is the one that's present in the fact that he doesn't just give back the ox that he stole. He has to give back five ox for the one that he stole, or he has to give back four sheep for the one that he stole. Or if he's caught in the act of the theft so they never really got away with it, If they find the stolen beast alive in his possession, he's still got to pay back double, not just the ox that he stole, but also another one from his own, I don't know, where he gets it, who knows? Yeah, good luck with that. Hopefully not from another guy's field, right? Okay, so anyway, the point is, this has to do with punishment. Why are we punishing the guy? He gave back the animal. We put him in some kind of program where he's gonna be reformed, and let's say it's all successful. Why are we also punishing him? why do we also require him to go to prison for a while and and i am not at all presuming that our prison sentences are just right now i'm not at all presuming that i'm not i'm not condemning the fact that there might need to be some incarceration of people <clears throat> i do believe that i believe we are way 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 over the top in where we are in incarcerating people right now i do believe that and that but that again is a conversation for a different day i have brought it up in different contexts. But for now, I'm simply making the point that punishment is a part, not just a biblical historical ways of dealing with wrongdoing, but cultural responses to wrongdoing throughout history in every culture. Punishment is built into our our understanding of what needs to happen when somebody does things at a certain level of wrongness. In some way, they need to be punished. Why is that? And it's because they have, in the first two examples, you remember we were saying, first two examples, the first two uh, points that we were making about the complexity of this violation when somebody violates one of the, one of the laws in the second table of the commandments, you know? you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't do all those things, or don't kill, you know, all of those things. When someone violates those laws, what, you know, what is it they've really violated? Well, we said, one, they violated their own nature that we're not supposed to be people like that, so we need reformation for that person. Secondly, they have they have a debt to whoever they took from. They need to pay it back, so restitution. But thirdly, they violated the social contract itself. But let me put it in theological terms first. They violated God. This is what David is saying in the 51st Psalm against you and you only have I sinned. That doesn't mean there aren't other offenses that he committed, but he's saying the only thing I need to focus on right now is the fact that the person I was violating was you, God. I was sinning against you, and so the idea of the person's violence to God, but let me just step back from that and say, you don't have to believe in God, and I I absolutely think you ought to, and I do wholeheartedly, and I hold these things because of my belief in God, but even stepping back from that and just looking at it historically or socially, and David Hume would back this, and he's hardly a believer in God, The person's violence to the social contract, simply to the obligations that we have in that society, the person's violence against that contract is enough to require an act of punishment on that person. Now, I said punishment, and that's negative. On the other two, I was using words that were affirmative. Remember, if the the person's violated their own virtue, they need reformation. The person has a debt to whoever they stole from. They need restitution. But in this case, I'm saying the person violated the social contract, they need punishment. Well, there is another option. It's atonement. But that's the only other option, you know, aside from punishment. And atonement entails the idea of punishment, but punishment on someone who took our place. This is the nature of the good news that we have in Christ. Okay, so you're you're beginning to see how complex this is on this third level that we're talking about the moral failure of the person in violation of the social contract, in violation of their relationship with God, it's because they have violated the moral or the social code. We have agreed together that when a person owns something, they can keep it. We have agreed together that you can't take someone else's life unjustly. We've agreed together that you're not going to get up in court and lie about people or spread false rumors about them and so on. And when you violate that code, you've not just offended that person, you've offended all of us because you've created a society in which we're not sure people are going to do what they said they were going to do. We have a serious problem when that happens, and so punishment comes into the picture. This one corresponds, by the way, with Deontology. Deontology is the is the idea of a duty-based ethic. It's the one that I spent the most time on uh, because I'm a Kantian ethicist. Not that anybody cares about that word, but I'm just saying. And it but it but it does have to do with that, like for instance, the Ten Commandments, especially the second table of the law, and those rules having been violated and the the simple fact that when they're violated, something needs to be done in response to that, because they are the thing that allows us to function together and so on. So deontology is brought, now think about this. I'm telling you that just dealing with a person who has committed some kind of violation of a moral code corresponds in some way with having violated any of these three ethical systems which are mutually exclusive ethical systems. If you're a virtue ethicist, and I won't go into it right now, you don't believe the same things that the ontologist believes or that a utilitarian believes. And you argue for ethics in ways that are incompatible with those other views. And you even come to different conclusions about what people ought to do in given circumstances. And yet, I'm telling you, we can't escape the fact that all three of these systems have to come to bear for us to grasp why we respond to immoralities, to transgressions, to sins, to crimes, the way that we do. And so, you know, so let me give you an example of this. The difference between all three of these layers, you know, your own virtue, the debt you owe, the violence you've committed against God or the social contract, that when you take all three of those together, the difference between those three makes for some distinctions in how things are to be handled when someone violates their commitments. So, for instance, in, uh, when, when we're talking about the virtue side of this, if I were talking about it from the ethical systems, when we were talking about the virtue side of this, a person has failed to be the kind of person they're supposed to be, we actually believe when we're dealing with people like this, this is why we make Reformation the primary target, that we owe it to someone who's committed this kind of violation, and then we recognize that it's, it's built into their character. There's something that's, that's fallen short in them. They're not virtuous, they're vicious. That's the reason we believe we owe it to the violators, and we do, by the way, to figure out what's gone wrong with them. You know, to punish, for instance, and that's at the other end of the spectrum, remember, remember to punish a drug addict without dealing with their addiction would be an absurdity. To punish, and we do it all the time, to punish a drug addict without figuring out what's gone wrong in them as a person to uh, engender this sense of dependency and this genuine dependency, not just sense of dependency, is, uh, (laughs) it should be a non-starter for us if we're actually trying to deal with things in the right way or to be practically helpful even. So virtue is the thing that requires us to do that, but it doesn't serve alone. It's not the only thing. The debt that was created, the harm that was created, well, I'm missing a sheep, I'm missing an ox, or the breaking of the contract. Well, this person no longer functions in our society as someone you can trust to go behind your gate and not steal your sheep. Either of those, that is, number two or three in the list that I was giving earlier, those are reasons for us to say, well, you know, that's true that something's gone wrong with them, and that we need to address that and help them reform so that they're not that way anymore. But no matter what's gone wrong with them, these things, the debt and the harm and the breaking of the contract, say there's still a mandate to deal with what they've done that hurt others or that violated the moral code or the social contract or God. In other words, dealing with reformation doesn't eliminate the need for restitution, for instance. I know he stole from you, but he was a drug addict, so you can just do without the $100,000, right? It's not that big a deal. I mean, come on, let's help the guy out. That's not how it works. And I don't just mean not how it works practically. I mean, not how it should work. Restitution should still be a part of the picture, and so should punishment. I know that he was an addict when this happened. I know that they were abused when they were a child, but they killed a child, you know, but this person broke into a home and terrorized a family. So we're going to have to punish them. We're going to have to do something to protect society from this in the future in addition to Reformation, in addition to restitution. So so my point is the fact that the three different layers of violation and the three different ethical systems, the fact that the three different violations can be so easily correlated with the big three ethical systems, which are theoretically – Mutually exclusive. They don't work with each other. It strongly implies something that I think will help us to approach these issues with greater humility. It strongly implies that there's no single ethical theory capable of fully grasping our moral obligations. Now, that's not where I want to stop. Don't hang with me. I know we're almost done. Just hang with me to the end because this is important. I think it's important for us to recognize that this reveals, in one case, That when we're in another case dealing with God or any other ultimate reality, what's the nature of the cosmos? What's eternity? What, you know, and so on. That dealing with any of those things, we often have to use mutually exclusive ideas together. And what that says is more about us than the ultimate reality. It doesn't say there's no truth, it doesn't say there's not an absolute way of understanding the truth. It does say that we're not great at putting together all the truths of the universe and grasping them as a singular whole. We're just not great at that. We're, and, and so what it says is more about us than the ultimate reality, and, and it says that our judgment, that ideas are incompatible, may be what's wrong. That we are, after all, finite creatures, and yet we're bent on, and I think God created us so that we would do this we're bent on understanding infinite truths. So the point of having this conversation and leading into the next episode, or maybe the next two episodes, is that no matter how complex the problem or the solution, some responses may still just be wrong. Meaning, there are some truths we do grasp. And so just saying, oh, yeah, well, they committed genocide, but it was because of their culture and so it's okay. No, 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 that would be wrong. Oh, yeah, he's an abuser, but, you know, wife's got to submit and have a, you know, she's got to commit to her husband and she might redeem him and so on. No, that's not a good good enough answer. There is a different way to answer that. So first, I want to say this, that no matter how complex the problem or the solution may be, and in this case, the problem is a transgression of some kind, and the solution is, what, restoration or continued accountability? No matter how complex the problem or the solution, some responses may still just be flat wrong. So there are some cases where we can say, don't do that. Can I tell you for sure what you do have to do? Maybe, maybe not. But, but I can certainly tell you some things not to do, right? so to and and that's the perfect example to justify or overlook or tolerate or excuse abuse is just flat wrong there's there's no exception to that okay so there's one but the but it says something else too it says that even when there is no perfect solution that is when every single response you can find still leaves something amiss, still leaves something imperfect, that in that case, we still have to do something. We still have to do what we can. And we'll talk more about that. I get it that this is not satisfying for everybody, but this is the reality of the world we live in. And it's something we need to learn to deal with when we're answering these questions about what we do with somebody who has gone wrong and then come back. What do we do? And that finally, that settling on one response doesn't mean everybody who would do the other is inherently wrong. They're not always in that only one path has any right options in it. It's not always that way. And so I'm bringing all of this up uh, to this day to, to invite us to take seriously the considerations all of us have to deal with when we're dealing with Uh, drug addicts in our lives, or abusers in others' lives, or that we've come across in our lives, or even our own abuses or our own addictions, and we're trying to make things right as we deal with all of those things, that we come at them with enough humility that we're willing to acknowledge that our response may not be perfect, but that we come with enough faith to realize that our response can make a difference. That's what we want to do. We want to make a difference. Coming into this new year as people make resolutions and decide what they're going to commit to, that's the difference I want all of us to have in mind, that we commit ourselves to enough faith that we realize that we can make a difference.
1: Thanks for joining us for Coffee with cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.